From New England Public Radio in Springfield, Massachusetts, where I'm in here talking with you, even though it's beautiful outside, this is NEPR News Now. Stories you really should not miss. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Hudzik. Coming up, a New England supermarket chain gobbles up its leftovers and turns them into energy. But within this facility, we can take it from any department. We can take packaged goods. So as you can see, what you're looking at here is already packaged onion rings. Then there's no debate that Paul Cumby and three other men were assaulted outside a Springfield bar two years ago. He was severely injured. He was knocked unconscious. He had a broken ankle. Um, and he had several teeth knocked loose, is how he phrased it. There is debate about who's responsible for it. New details in a case that has 12 police officers facing disciplinary action. And we head to Mass Ave in Cambridge for a report on how opioid addicts are using public bathrooms. I do. I know all the bathrooms that I can and can't get um, get high in. Even in the train station downstairs, you can use that bathroom most days and not be bothered. And that's especially dangerous for the addict with maybe no one around to notice an overdose. All that and more just ahead on NEPR News Now. But first, a new state program starting this month is designed to encourage Massachusetts residents on limited incomes to eat more locally grown fruits and vegetables by providing a financial incentive. New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen reports. People who receive SNAP dollars, which used to be called food stamps, can take advantage of the HIP, or Healthy Incentives Program. If someone buys produce using SNAP dollars at a farmer's market, mobile market, farm stand, or community-supported farm, the amount of the purchase will be deposited right back into their SNAP account. Winton Pitkoff is with the Massachusetts Food Systems Collaborative, which is helping to launch the program. We're really trying to incentivize both the purchasing of healthy foods for folks who tend to not have easy access to those foods and to incentivize those purchases from local farms so that the money is staying in the local economy. For instance, if a SNAP recipient buys a head of lettuce at a farm stand for $2, another $2 will automatically be added to their account. There's a limit of $20 to $80 a month, depending on the size of the household. The consumer can use that money right away to buy something directly from a farmer or later at a grocery store. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has provided $3.4 million in funding, but Pitkoff says the program costs double that. He says his group is seeking $800,000 from the state to buy EBT terminals for each farmer that wants to participate. The machines process the purchase and deposit the funds back into SNAP accounts. Each one costs more than $600 a year, including fees. About two dozen farmers are already set up, but others, like Maureen Dempsey from Intervale Farm in West Hampton are still waiting for terminals. I went to see if I could apply for a grant to get a machine, and I w- a notice came up saying that their funds were no longer available, so I could be put on a waiting list. So I'm just not sure now how that's going to work. What it means is the program is still being rolled out. The state expects to have funds available by the time the farmer's market season is in full swing. Dempsey, who helps run the farmer's market in Florence, Massachusetts, says this program is really important. I think it's important to have local access to healthy foods for everybody, no matter what your income. Uh, You shouldn't be prevented from going to a place like a farmer's market and purchasing really healthy, fresh vegetables and fruits because you can't afford to. 
The USDA based the incentives program on a pilot project that ran in Hampton County. On average, participants ate almost a quarter of a cup more fruits and vegetables each day. For New England Public Radio, I'm Nancy Cohen. Let's stay on food for a few minutes. Each year, billions of pounds of it go to waste. That means billions of dollars, too. The Environmental Protection Agency says more food reaches landfills and incinerators than any other one material in our trash. And for supermarkets, that leftover food equates to lost dollars. Now one New England supermarket chain is trying to get some of those dollars back by sending old food once consigned to trash compactors to a giant energy plant in Massachusetts. It's called an anaerobic digester. And as WNPR's Patrick Scahill reports, it's basically a big metal stomach which gobbles up old food and turns that waste into power. I'm on the floor of Stop and Shop's distribution warehouse in Freetown, Massachusetts, looking down a long line of garage doors. Each day, trucks unload old and expired food from over 200 New England stores, and eventually that organic waste turns into electricity. Roger Belavove is manager of distribution services for Stop and Shop, and he says a lot of that old food comes from produce departments. But within this facility, we can take it from any department. We can take packaged goods. So as you can see, what you're looking at here is already packaged onion rings, which are in a plastic container, which will go into the plant. The story of how those onion rings get converted into electricity begins with an array of machines, which crank away as we talk. I watch as plastic packaging is separated from old food, like wilted greens, expired dairy, and even flowers. Then all the organics get mixed down with water. It's uh, turned into a slurry, basically a big slushy. Kevin Stetson is with Divert, the company Stop and Shop uses to run the food energy plant. Stetson says that slushy is slurped up by machines and fed at a steady rate into the core of the waste energy plant, its anaerobic digester. The uh, anaerobic digestion likes a steady state, just like humans. We don't want to eat a big meal and then not eat for two days. We want to eat at a regular, at a regular rate. That balance is important because inside the anaerobic digester are bacteria, which gobble up that yummy milkshake and eventually release methane. The process is contained, so it doesn't smell, and that methane biogas is used to power a generator that today is spitting out about one megawatt of power. That's not a lot, but at full bore, the unit outputs enough electricity to fulfill about 40% of the power needs for the more than one million square foot distribution center. Divert says right now about 70 to 80 tons of food waste come in each day, and in the summer, that number is even higher. It's a lot of food, or looked at another way, a lot of lost money. When you waste less food as a company, you save money. Dana Gunders is a senior scientist with the Natural Resources Defense Council and author of a 2012 paper examining wasted food in the U.S. Nationwide, she says grocers are taking a much closer look at the food they throw away. But generally speaking, uh, if there's an empty shelf out there, that's viewed as a missed sale. And so they want to make sure there's enough product on the shelf that uh, when a consumer gets there and, and wants that product, that they can have it. Gunders says the calculus of acceptable losses has changed in recent years. And while it's still hard to find a misshapen carrot or a bruised apple on a store shelf, grocers are taking a harder look at reducing waste and costs up and down their supply chains. Back at the Stop and Shop plant, Roger Belavove says getting old food out of incinerators and landfills is good for the environment, sure, but the anaerobic digester is also good for his company's bottom line. The digester reduces the cost of energy for a distribution center that runs 24-7, and it means less trash that the company needs to pay to get rid of. Some of our stores are down to maybe hauling their compactor once every other month versus it could have been every, every two to three weeks. The digester makes a lot of compost, too. 
Every week, about three dump truck loads of nutrient-rich soil, which eventually could help grow the next generation of produce lining supermarket shelves. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill. New details were made public this past week in a case in Springfield of an alleged fight between several city residents and a group of off-duty police officers outside a bar in 2015. An internal investigation by the Springfield police was obtained by Mass Live reporter Dan Glahn. He's been following this story and joined New England Public Radio's Henry App, who takes it from here. So this alleged altercation between police and a group of residents happened exactly two years ago today. What happened and why is it still significant? This case stretches back to April 7th, 2015, when the group of victims in this case, uh, Paul Cumby, his cousins, Joselle and Jackie Legon, and their friend Michael Sinjin, were drinking at Nathan Bill's Bar and Restaurant in Springfield. And from various accounts, what seems to have taken place is they got into an argument uh, with a group of off-duty police officers while in the bar who thought that Joselle was whistling at one of the women they were with. Um, and after that verbal dispute, which is about at 1.15 a.m. on April 8th, they were asked to leave. They did so. About 50 minutes later, they're jumped by a group of anywhere from 8 to 15 guys, is what they told police. And they believed that several of those men were the off-duty officers they had been arguing with before. There were no arrests made at the time. And about a month later, one of the victims, Paul Cumby, made a complaint to the police department, which sparked both the criminal investigation and this internal disciplinary probe, uh, which we obtained on Tuesday. And Paul Cumby was, was injured in that fight, right? That's correct. He was severely injured. He was knocked unconscious. He had a broken ankle. Um, and he had several teeth knocked loose, is how he phrased it. Well, what's the significance of this? Why have you pursued this story? There are a few reasons. The first is that it sort of escaped public disclosure entirely for about 18 months. There was you know, no disclosure, no public record of it until we published a story on the case uh, last fall. Um, and the other element is that the Springfield Police Department has other issues on its plate right now. There are a few sort of uh, misconduct cases that have been floating around for a substantial amount of time in the police department, and this is another one that has come to light recently. You got this internal investigation from the police department after several appeals for it uh, to the state public records office. So what new information is in this internal report? So details of this fight had finally been officially confirmed in February when the district attorney decided not to press criminal charges. Um, He released a report on his decision. He said that The men were definitely victims of assault, but they couldn't clearly ID their attackers, and so he couldn't move forward with a criminal case. But this investigation includes new information, such as that investigators reviewed a security camera from outside the Nathan Bills parking lot, which didn't capture the fight, but did have 10 minutes of missing video, which had not been disclosed before. And then another good detail is that an off-duty officer who had not been previously named, um, Jose Diaz, told investigators that he was at the bar uh, shortly before the fight. Uh, helping the owner clean up after closing. He told investigators he left at 2, but a uniformed officer uh, said that he saw him there at 3 a.m. after the fight. And after confronted with this discrepancy by the investigator, he immediately pleaded the fifth. These officers, or some of them at least, may still be disciplined. That's right. Um, So while there's no criminal case, there is a disciplinary proceeding that's moving forward. Um, The city attorney at Pakula told me they expect to do those proceedings in May. And even though they're not being charged... um, Some of the details in here, such as the fact that they refused to speak to investigators or took the Fifth Amendment, could be used against them in disciplinary proceedings. And beyond the officers accused of being in the fight, the responding officers, uh, who this investigation says cannot clearly explain why they didn't search the bar after uh, this fight was reported, they just drove up and down the street, 
they are also being uh, investigated for disciplinary purposes. Well, Paul Cumby and others who were allegedly beaten identified the people who fought them as between 8 and 15 white men. Is that right? That's right. And Cumby is African-American. Was race a factor in this fight and the aftermath? I believe the victims believe so. Um, I mean, that's hard to say. The officers who were accused, um, at least one of them was Hispanic, several were white. So, I mean, I can't give a conclusive answer on that. Well, the details in this case come at a time when the Springfield Police Department is dealing with several other allegations of misconduct. How is the department and the city responding to that? According to uh, off-the-record sources who have spoken to people with the Springfield Republican, um, morale has suffered because of this. It has certainly had ramifications. The Springfield City Council voted to eliminate the position of police commissioner and replace it with a civilian police commission uh, which has sort of stalled because Mayor Darmanik Sarner refuses to go along with it. Is there any effort on the part of the police commissioner or, or the mayor to make reforms in the police department, or is there, an, is there a feeling that that's needed even? Well, I mean, they've said that the internal disciplinary process is working as it's supposed to, that they've taken these cases seriously, that they've, they've produced these investigations and are moving ahead with discipline um, you know, in the way that is legally allowed. Mayor Dominic Sarno has said that he has full confidence in the capabilities of the Internal Affairs Unit um, and that they're committed to having a just resolution to this. Reporter Dan Glan of Mass Live, thanks so much. Thank you. We really appreciate it when journalists from around New England share their reporting with our audience. So a big hat tip to Dan Glan. You can read his coverage at masslive.com, and we posted a link to his story at nepr.net. In many Massachusetts communities, public restrooms have become ground zero in the opioid battle, as they are one of the few places where people can find privacy to inject. But needles clogging toilets in fast food restaurants and libraries and town halls is leading to lots of tensions, especially for workers in those places. WBUR's Martha Biebinger takes us to Cambridge for a look at the problem. So we're going to go check out the place we talked about. That's this way. A man named Eddie guides me through the mid-afternoon crowd toward a sandwich shop. Some restaurants, offices, and a social service agency in this diverse Cambridge urban neighborhood of Central Square have closed their bathrooms to the public in recent months. Not this place. We stop in front of big glass windows. With these bathrooms here, you don't need a key. Just if it's vacant, you go in. And then the staff just leaves you alone. I know so many people that get high here. At the fast food place right across the street, it's much harder to get in and out. You don't need a key, but they have a security guard that sits at the little table by the door directly from the bathroom. Some guards require a receipt for admission to the bathroom, Eddie says, but you can grab one from the trash. Eddie, who's 39 and homeless, works in a restaurant himself. We're only using his first name because he's admitting to illegal drug use. Eddie is on methadone, which curbs his craving for heroin, so he only uses occasionally to be social with friends. Our next stop, a national burrito chain. So now, like, this place, you have to get the code to use their bathroom. But if you go in there and sit on that side by the bathroom, if you wait long enough, someone's going to use that bathroom, and then you say, hey, hold the door for me, and then you're in. So you know which bathrooms I do. Can. I, I do. I know all the bathrooms that I can and can't get um, get high in. Even in the train station downstairs, you can use that bathroom most days and not be bothered. But so that's not good in some ways, right? It's not good at all because who's keeping an eye on them? That's why you have to have somebody with you to make sure that you don't overdose. It's, it's, it's unfortunate that it's come to that, but that's the way it is. 
you can understand why the restaurants might be freaked out about this, right? Absolutely. I mean, these businesses primarily are like family businesses. They don't expect to find somebody dead. So I get it. But what are businesses supposed to do? Some have installed low lighting, blue in particular, to make it difficult for drug users to find a vein. But Joshua Gerber, who owns the 1369 Coffee House, is focused on keeping all of his customers safe. He's drilled a metal box into the wall next to his toilet for needles and other things that clog pipes. And Gerber removed the drop ceilings in his bathrooms after noticing things tucked above the tiles. We'd find needles or people's, people's drugs. Uh, it's, it's a tricky thing managing a public restroom in a um, big, busy square like Central Square where there's a lot of drug use. Gerber and his staff have found several people on the bathroom floor not breathing. And it's very scary, you know. In an ideal world, users would have safe places to go that it didn't become the job of a business to manage that and to look after them and make sure that they were okay. There are no such safe use spaces in Massachusetts or anywhere in the U.S. So Gerber is taking the unusual step of training his baristas to use naloxone, the drug that reverses most opioid overdoses. He sent a training invitation email to all employees last week. Within 10 minutes, he had about 25 replies. Mostly capital yes, exclamation point, exclamation point, you know, I'll be there for sure, count me in, you know, just thrilled to figure out how they might be able to save a life. Naloxone has become standard equipment for security guards at many hospitals in the Boston area. I I carry it on me every day. It's right here in a little pouch. Ryan Curran, a police and security operations manager at Massachusetts General Hospital, stands outside a bathroom in the main lobby at MGH where a woman OD'd last fall. She survived, as have seven or eight other people who overdosed in MGH bathrooms since Curran's team started carrying naloxone in the last year and a half. It's definitely uh, relieving when, when you know and you see someone breathing again when two, three minutes beforehand they looked lifeless and then a couple pumps in the nasal spray and, then, and they're doing better. It's pretty incredible. Mass General started training security guards after emergency room physician Dr. Ali Raja realized the hospital's bathrooms had become a magnet for some of his overdose patients. There's an understanding that if you overdose in and around a hospital, that you're much more likely to be able to be treated. And so we're finding patients in our restrooms. We're finding patients in our lobbies. Many businesses, including hospitals and clinics, don't want to talk about overdoses within their buildings. And Raja and Curran at Mass General want to be sure their message on drug use is clear. Here's Curran again. We don't want to promote, obviously, people coming here and using it. But if it's going to happen, then we'd like to be prepared to to, to help them and, and save them and get them to the ED as fast as possible. Speed is critical, especially now, when heroin is routinely mixed with fentanyl. Some clinics and restaurants check on bathroom users by having staff knock on the door after 10 or 15 minutes. But fentanyl can lead to oxygen-deprived brain death within that window. One clinic has installed an intercom and requires people to respond. Another has just designed a reverse motion detector that sets off an alarm if there's no movement in the bathroom. During an epidemic, you might think public health officials would issue safety practices for bathrooms, but Boston Medical Center's Dr. Alex Wally says no one wants to talk about their strategies in public. It's against federal and state law to provide a space where people can use knowingly. So that is a big deterrent 
from people talking about this problem. Without some guidance, more libraries, town halls, and businesses are closing their bathrooms to the public. That means more drug use, injuries, and discarded needles in parks and on city streets. But keeping bathrooms open by stocking naloxone and monitoring who goes in and for how long is a challenge for many businesses. Daniel Raymond with the New York-based Harm Reduction Coalition says more communities are reaching a breaking point with bathrooms. Having dedicated facilities like safer drug consumption spaces is the best bet for a long-term structural solution that I think a lot of business owners could buy into. Maybe. No business groups in Massachusetts have come out in favor of rooms in which users could inject drugs under the supervision of a doctor or nurse. But there is a lot of frustration about how to manage bathrooms. For New England Public Radio, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. Thanks for listening to NEPR News Now, stories you really should not miss. This show is produced by listener-funded New England Public Radio. Please give us a rating on iTunes, and while you're there, take a look at the other podcasts from NEPR. You can support these podcasts and all the news and music NEPR delivers to your car, your home, and your phone by going to the newly redesigned NEPR.net. Check it out. And if you're feeling some pride in public radio, click the bright orange Donate button at the top of the page. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you.